Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights in education. Hello and welcome back to So To Speak, the free speech podcast. I am your host, Nico Perino, and every other week on this show, we take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. Our conversation today, it's with Jamil Jaffer. He is the director of the Knight First Amendment Institute at Columbia University. Founded in 2016 by the Knight Foundation and Columbia University with a gigantic $60 million grant, the the Institute's mission is to support litigation, research, and education on threats to freedom of speech and the press and help shape First Amendment law in the digital age. Or, as we discuss in this podcast, its mission is to take analog-era First Amendment ideas and bring them into the digital age. Jamil has quite an interesting background, which we get into at the beginning of our conversation. He's Canadian, for one, and he clerked for the Chief Justice of Canada's Supreme Court, which actually led to his interest in civil liberties work. And then he went and spent many years at the ACLU working on national security, privacy, and transparency issues. Jamil's work on privacy and transparency are actually relevant to his First Amendment work at the Knight Institute insofar as the Institute has made a name for itself by tackling privacy and transparency concerns through a First Amendment lens, an approach that actually some in the First Amendment community are skeptical of, which we get into during this conversation as well, but that Jamil maintains is consistent with the First Amendment's history and its purpose. You might be familiar with one of the Institute's early and ongoing cases involving its efforts to get Donald Trump to unblock his critics on Twitter, an effort that the Institute was successful in at the district court and is up on appeal at the moment. I spoke with Jamil last month on Constitution Day, actually, at the Knight Institute's offices on Columbia University's campus in New York City, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Jamil, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. On Constitution Day, no less. Oh, yeah, that's right. So I want before we dive into the Knight First Amendment Institute, I want to get a little bit of uh, your background. So you went to Williams College, correct? I did. And then yeah. Harvard Law School. Yep. And what got you interested in civil liberties work? Um, well, I guess I had been interested in civil liberties work for, for a while, but I didn't really get thinking about it as a career until I clerked after law school. Uh, I spent a, a year clerking uh, here in New York for the Second Circuit, mm-hmm. or a judge on the Second Circuit, and then I spent a year clerking in Ottawa for the Chief Justice of the Canadian Supreme Court. I'm Canadian. I okay. grew up in Canada. Um, and Wait, was there a specific case that you were involved in that piqued your yeah, interest? Yeah, well, so I, you know, I can't talk about which cases I worked on, but I can tell you a little bit about which cases were before the court at the mm-hmm. time I was there. So... Um, uh, especially at the Canadian Supreme Court, I just happened to be there at a time when there were um, a lot of civil liberties cases and free speech cases in particular. Um, one case called uh, Sharp, which involved um, it was a child pornography case, but had mm. to do with somebody who had drawn fo- drawn pictures of child pornography. And the question was, um, what 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 uh, what does Section Two B, which is the Canadian you know First Amendment? 
uh, analog? What does it have to say about somebody's right to draw those those pictures? How would you know the images were a child? Was there con- contextual factors? It was like a cartoon point? that somebody had drawn. Yeah, and and um, uh, you know, apparently you could tell from the you know from the image, image. itself that it was a child. Uh-huh. And uh, it was a very hard, you know, hard decision for the the court, and um, raised a lot of very fundamental questions about what Section Two B was about. Um, and the Chief Justice ended up writing an opinion about that that case, a kind of free speech opinion about that uh, about that case. There was also another case that year, which is and where, where, where did even, they come out on it? Um, they they. They came out. They had a free speech opinion okay. um, that uh, used the phrase a "mere articulation of thought can't be criminalized," and they characterized this cartoon as a, you know, this comic as a, as a. I'm not sure that's the right word. Mm. This this uh, drawing as yeah. a uh, as a mere articulation of thought. Um, there was another case involving um, uh, refoulement to torture, sending refugees back to a place where they would be tortured. Uh, had to do with a Tamil refugee from Sri Lanka. Um, and the case was heard by the court for the first time uh, in the spring of 2001 and was reheard by the court after I left, um, was reheard by the court after 9 11. Mm. Um, and that was a fascinating case um, that sort of you know raised all the questions that we have been debating since 9-11 here in the United States about the proper line to be drawn between, um, uh, you know, what limits uh, human rights principles place and should place on the government's power to do things in the name of national security. So those cases, um, you know, were fascinating cases and um, uh, made me even more interested in issues relating to civil liberties and human rights. And then I was, um, uh, I had agreed to, uh, I'd accepted an offer at a law firm here in New York, um, uh, a big law firm. And I Were you was, hoping to stay in Canada? <laughs> no, I, I sort of knew that I was, you know, I'd, I'd spent the previous almost decade in the United States yeah. and I knew that I would come back to, to the United States afterwards. Um, but uh, I, uh, at least, you know, immediately I knew that I would come back to the U.S. I, I never knew where I would end up eventually. Uh-huh. But um, there was, uh, uh, I'd accepted this offer to law firm in New York, and I started working here in October of 2001, so right after 9-11, and um, was doing a lot of pro bono work for the ACLU. And that eventually turned into a job at the ACLU. And I started at the ACLU in the summer of 2002 and intending to stay at the ACLU for you know a year or two and then go back to doing something else. Uh, but um, That's how it is with every job, isn't it? <laughs> I guess. Yeah, maybe it is. You know, but I, I, yeah, I mean, the ACLU was you know, very good to me. I had, um, you know, I had many opportunities at the ACLU that I wouldn't have got anywhere else. At the a most fascinating important of which, time. Yeah, the most important of which was the, the, the opportunity to work on these cases that I cared, you know, the, these issues that I cared so much about um, at a time when, um, you know, it, it seemed like, uh, the answers to those questions really, really mattered. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I worked on a whole array of cases ranging from um, uh, detention cases to interrogation and torture issues, targeted killing. Um, you worked on then, the Bush torture memos. 
Yeah, probably the longest running case I worked on at the ACLU was uh, a Freedom of Information Act case involving uh, the Bush administration's interrogation policies. And that case, which is still going on now, actually, I'm not involved in it anymore, but there are still lawyers at the ACLU who are working on it. That case um, ended up uh, resulting in the release of the torture memos, the Bush administration's torture memos, as well as uh, a lot of uh, other crucial information about the Bush administration's policies. Um, but then I worked on a lot of surveillance cases and... The NSA uh, stuff, that Snowden yeah, the, stuff. Right. So we, even before Snowden, even before the Snowden disclosures, we um, challenged the constitutionality of the Bush administration's warrantless wiretapping program. That was back in 2006. Yeah. Um, and, um, or 2005, 2006, and, um, you know, litigated that in the district court and in the Sixth Circuit, tried to get the Supreme Court to... Uh, we won in the district court. Uh, it was the decision was overturned on standing grounds in the Sixth Circuit, two to one, and we filed a cert petition in two thousand six, which the Supreme Court denied. And then um, we went back again after Congress uh, ratified, essentially ratified the Bush administration's warrantless wiretapping program through the FISA Amendments Act of yeah. two thousand eight. We went back and we challenged the constitutionality of that statute. Uh, lost in the district court, but won in the Second Circuit, um, held on to it in spite of a very contentious vote for rehearing on Bonk. Um, it was a 6-6 vote on rehearing, so we held on to it in the se Second Circuit, and then I argued it before the Supreme Court in 2012, uh, and we lost 5-4 uh, just a couple months before the Snowden disclosures. And we lost on the Do you ground. think it would have gone the other way if it had landed, the arguments had landed right around the Snowden disclosures or just after? Yeah, I well, say? you know, I have an interest in saying yes, it yeah, would have gone course. the other way, but I do think it would have gone the other way. I mean, it's, it was five to four, and the, the whole debate um, at that time, this was, uh, I guess, um, the winter, spring of 2013. Uh, was about whether our allegations were reasonable or not. And we alleged that this statute uh, would be used to surveil not only suspected terrorists, but a lot of other people as well, that the government would engage in dragnet collection. And um, and you didn't have any access to the information that Snowden that's subsequently right. revealed. That's right. We had basically just the statute itself. And we yeah. said, just read the statute. That's what the statute is designed for. And five justice of the, uh, uh, justices of the Supreme Court said, uh, ultimately, you have not established with sufficient um, certainty that this kind of surveillance you're describing will take place. And then just a couple months later, um, Snowden disclosed what he disclosed, and we learned that the surveillance was actually much, much broader than we had ever you know, thought it could be. Yeah, it could be. Um, so yes, I think it would have gone the other way, but who knows. Uh, and we went. Then we were involved in post Snowden uh, litigation over surveillance, including a challenge to the NSA's call records program, which involved the uh, you know mass collection of Americans' call records. Every time you picked up the telephone, the NSA you know, was essentially making a note of at what time you picked up the phone, who you called, how you how long you spoke to them for every single you know domestic phone call. And we won uh, a ruling from the Second Circuit um, that that program was unlawful, and they eventually retired that uh, that that program. So there's a lot of surveillance litigation, um, uh, which was you know both Fourth Amendment and First Amendment litigation. Well, there are some ties 
here with the Knight First Amendment Institute as well. But before I get there, a question from your Canadian background. What was your perspective growing up of America's First Amendment? Because I know uh, Canada has a different conception of free speech. It, it balances dignity a little bit more. Yeah, uh, you know, I'm not sure that I had a very good sense of the differences between the Canadian system and the American system, uh, you know, before I became a, a lawyer. Of course. Um, you know, my sense was that free speech was protected in Canada and free speech was protected in the United States. Um, and, you know, I... I think that there's a very good argument that that's true. That's largely true. Um, I, I'm not somebody who thinks that, um, you know, if if we reinterpreted the First Amendment um, to exclude the protection of uh, hate speech narrowly defined, um, the First Amendment sky would fall. You know, I think that there there's room for reasonable disagreement about where those lines should be drawn. Um, you know, my instinct is to favor the American approach over the Canadian approach, but um, I'm not sure those are the most important questions. Um, you know, to me, the more interesting questions right now, the more important questions right now uh, are not about that particular boundary, but rather about how we treat things like um, the chilling effect of surveillance or how we deal with the privatization of the public square. Uh, those questions seem to me much more important to whether we will be able to continue to say that free speech is protected. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, the hate speech and political speech questions, I mean, often those go before the high court. They're 9-0 decisions, so they're not as contentious or open questions as some of the things that you and the the Knight Institute are working on. The Institute was founded in 2006, correct? 2016, excuse me. yeah. And when they brought you aboard mm-hmm. as the director, was the mission fully formed? Because it seems as right. though the mission is very much in your image or your the image <laughs> of your interests, uh, well, given your work at the ACLU. And and it's yeah. a unique mission in the First Amendment community. Well, so so at, at a high level, there was a very clear sense of what the mission of the Institute would be. And, you know, the Institute grew out of these conversations that... Um, Lee Bollinger, who's the president of Columbia, and Alberto Ibarguen, who's the president of the Knight Foundation, had had over many years. And, uh, you know, their core insight was that these um, celebrated precedents from the 1960s and 70s, like um, the Pentagon Papers case, New York Times versus Sullivan, the, the cases that are really the core of the American free speech tradition, or the the foundation of the American free speech tradition, that those cases were decided uh, in an era in which the threats to free speech looked very, very different than the ones we're facing today. I think it says on your website, the analog era, and we've now entered the digital era. That's right. That's right. Yeah, these are analog era precedents, and now we have digital era questions, right? And they thought, we need an institute that is dedicated to figuring out what the right answers are to these complicated questions at the edge of law and the edge of technology, uh, and then fighting for those answers in court. And, um, y- you know, the, the at that level, the, the mission of the Institute was decided before I, I came on board. The, the Institute was set up to... Um, defend the First Amendment in the digital age through litigation and research and public education. 
beyond that, it's been a conversation between me and the board um, over the last couple of years. And the board includes Lee Bollinger and Alberto Bargwen, but also includes um, from Columbia, Steve Cole and Nick Lemon, um, from the journalism school, Jillian Lester, who's the dean of the law school, uh, Jerry Rossberg, who's an advisor to Lee. And then we have some external uh, board members as well, Eve Burton, who's general counsel at Hearst, uh, Eduardo Peñalver, who's the dean of the law school at Cornell, uh, Ted Olson, the former solicitor general. Uh, so it's a you know it's a pretty diverse uh, and obviously very accomplished group of um, board members, and uh, we've had a conversation now for two years about where the institute's energy should be uh, dedicated, and um, you know I think it's fair to say we've taken many different things into account. One of them is. Um, what are other organizations working on? You know, where is the field already well represented and where are there gaps? And uh, what are we especially well positioned to do as an institute that is housed at a major research university uh, but also has a research uh, a litigation arm? Um, what are the what are the talents and backgrounds of the staff of the institute? You know, I, um, you know, as you alluded to, you know, my own background, um, is as a national security lawyer uh, who's done a lot of work on privacy issues. So, you know, our docket reflects that too. Uh, but then there are also, there's also the fact that the world, you know, presents us with new challenges every day and we are, um, you know, responding to what the world uh, presents. So, you know, maybe our um, uh, most significant piece of litigation so far, and certainly the one that's received the most attention. It's in the also press. your first case. I'm just, I know where you're going, right? Yeah. yeah well, so it's, it was not actually our first case, but it, it it has got so much attention that people, you know, assume that it was our first case. Yeah, whoever we did your, cases before that nobody paid attention to. Whoever your comms director is great because you go to the cases page on your website and it's right up at top. Like right, they know right, what people right, are right, going right, for. Right. Well, yeah. So we challenged President Trump's practice of. Uh, blocking critics on from his Twitter account. And everybody loves talking about Twitter. Everybody loves talking about Trump or hates talking about Trump. And um, this is a fascinating First Amendment question about, you know, is it is it fair to characterize public officials, social media accounts as public forums under the First Amendment? Um, are these the digital age equivalents of town halls and city council meetings? Um and, uh, you know, it's really made for law school exams and law school hypotheticals. So, um, you know, but that case in a way is, you know, perfect for us because it uh, involves these deep structural trends relating to new technology and new uses of new technology, but also involves uh, a set of issues that are in the news right now and that everybody is already talking about. President Trump's Twitter account, you know, specifically is... Yeah. Um, you know, something that is so from a communications people, perspective, yeah. it's like you're you're drawing the attention of journalists who might come to you in the future to look at these issues just by the nature of how newsworthy your first case or not your first case, yeah, yeah, one of your first early cases, case or, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Well, you know, the other thing that I liked about this case is that uh, when we filed it, um, there was really a diversity of opinion on you know whether we knew what we were talking about or not. Like a lot of people thought. Um, Including some First Amendment scholars, yeah. uh, initially resisted the uh, idea that President Trump's Twitter account could be conceived of as a public forum. I remember. So I was I interviewed Eugene Volokh out in California, right. like two months before you right. filed this lawsuit, 
and we were talking about virtual reality. He had just written a paper about virtual reality mm-hmm. and some of the, the free speech First Amendment implications of that. Now, we were gotten talking about politicians and how future town halls might occur in virtual reality or how politicians might be able to create a world for themselves in virtual reality, like very esoteric stuff. And I'm like, well, what would be the First Amendment implications if a politician discussed decided to exclude an individual Mm -hmm. from their new virtual reality. And Eugene's initial instinct was that that wouldn't violate First Amendment principles. But then your case came out, and I think he read read the... uh, read the case and read the briefs and he seemed to come along to your side. Yeah, it's, not uh, not immediately. You know, so he's obviously one of the, you know, sharpest first amendment thinkers out there. Um and so I was particularly interested to, you know, to read his reactions to it. And his first reaction was a relatively skeptical one. Yeah. Uh, but then he wrote another post a few weeks later in which he said, "You know what? Maybe there's something here." I know. Uh and uh my uh impression is that he um you know, is is uh, now more or less on our side in this case, although he is still uh, still has some uh, reservations about the extension of our argument to other factual circumstances, which are you know totally understandable reservations. Um, uh, but there are other you know other um, once critics who have sort sort of come around. Uh, over the course of the litigation, and that's very well. You gratifying. won at the trial court. Yeah, we won right. in the district court. That's right. And uh, and and over the last few weeks, the Trump administration, the White House, has unblocked um, all of our clients as well as dozens of other people who were blocked on viewpoints. So it's a grounds. Knight Institute versus Trump. How did you that's get standing right. in in that case? So we made um, we made a right to hear argument. We said that um, uh, the Knight Institute follows. The president's Twitter account. We are, in other words, participants in this public forum, and the exclusion of uh, speakers from this forum on the basis of viewpoint uh, injures us as listeners. Uh, and we won on that argument too. Uh, Did you bring in, in other plaintiffs court. just in case you you didn't have standing? No, absolutely. We had we had seven um, others who were blocked themselves, okay. personally blocked, yeah. um, on the basis of viewpoint, and. Um, you know, the whole case has been litigated um, on a joint stipulation of fact. So, you know, in the ordinary course, what would have happened after we filed our, filed our complaint is that we would do some discovery uh, as to who, you know, who actually did the blocking here and why did they do the blocking. Uh, the the judge suggested to both parties that uh, instead of going through that discovery, the parties agree to a set of stipulated facts um, and maybe surprisingly, uh, at least it was initially surprising to me, the government agreed to do that. And they gave us a set of stipulated facts in which they conceded that the president himself had blocked our plaintiffs, that he had done so after they had criticized him through tweets. Um, they gave us a bunch of other concessions that turned out to be very important to us in the litigation. He's got to be watching his Twitter account very closely with the thousands and, and tens of thousands of retweets and likes he gets. I mean, I just look at mine. Yeah. I, I only have a thousand. It's just the, what you yeah. would have to sift through in order to find your critics. I mean, well, the I imagine is, there are a lot. So, so there, there are a lot of critics, but the reason he blocked our plaintiffs is that they weren't just critics, but they were po- their criticism was popular. So they, cri- oh, okay. they criticized him, and then other people uh, uh, liked or retweeted their criticism, which put their, critici- their criticism at the top of the president's 
feed. Yeah. So when President Trump opened up his Twitter account in the morning, he saw you know his own tweet from yesterday, and right under it, he saw our clients. Criticism of him, yeah, which got which got him apparently, yeah, yeah, right, and and that got him apparently sort of riled up, and Mm -hmm. he he blocked them. Um, But uh, anyway, the the whole case so far has proceeded on that basis, and now the government has unblocked um, our clients as well as dozens of other people, but it is appealing the decision below. So we're in the Second Circuit now, arguing over the constitutionality of this kind of blocking, even though you know during the pendency of the litigation now. Uh, the our clients will be able to participate in the public forum. As Has oral to. argument been set yet? Not in the Second Circuit, no. I would expect probably um, uh, early December or something like that. So how do we sift through the question of there are official Twitter accounts for the president, and then there's his Twitter account that he had as a private citizen for years. Mm-hmm. But if I understand your argument correctly, he uses that to make public policy announcements, therefore it comes within the aegis of the federal government, is therefore, uh, you know, subject to the same sort of requirements of the First Amendment. If he was not doing that, if he was not making public pronouncements Mm -hmm. on policy issues on his personal Twitter account, would that still be a First Amendment concern for you? No, it, it, it wouldn't. You know, for, for us, it's not about, you know, whether you call it an official account or you call it a personal account. It's a functional question. You know, how is the account actually used? And, um, you know, what matters to us most in this case is that the president um, uh, uses the account almost entirely for official purposes. You know, he uses the account to... Uh, announce new government policies, to defend government policy, to announce appointments to important government offices. Yeah. Uh, he engages in international diplomacy, you know, through this, um, you know, through this mechanism. If you go to his profile page, the account is said to belong to the president of the United States, and there's a big photograph. I think last week it was of Air Force One. The the, the photograph changes. Yeah. Uh, but it's always something relating to his official duties. So there's if no you go to his this. official, quote unquote, official Twitter account, it says these tweets must be may be archived and the at POTUS account. Yeah, yeah, the at POTUS that, that's account. right, that's right. Um, but uh, you know, it's this account. So first of all, the accounts are used more or less interchangeably. The, uh-huh. the POTUS account will often retweet the at real Donald Trump uh, account and vice versa. And this is the account that. Obama used as well. <laughs> well, not not the one we're litigating. I, I know, at, but the other, the yeah, at POTUS, POTUS ones. That's right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it changes with the president. That's right. That's right. Yeah. This you know this one at real Donald Trump belonged to Trump before he became president, um, and presumably it'll belong to him again. Um, you know, after he leaves office. Uh, but it, it you know think of it like um, you know a local official who had a car before he or she became a local official and then used the car for official purposes during his or her tenure as an official. Mm-hmm. Um, y- you know you would treat that car um, as I'm not sure this is the best analogy. But you, <laughs> you know you would treat that car as um, an, an an appendage of the official in his or her official capacity you know you you if the car gets in an accident um you would expect the government to be responsible for that you know for the 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 cost of the accident uh this is uh, you know the same thing it's it's um was once private property but is now being used 
uh, for official purposes. And because it's being used for official purposes, uh, you know, almost entirely for official purposes, uh, it's subject to the First Amendment. On your website, you identify, I believe it's three priorities for the organization. And one of them is the increased privatization of the public square. So I imagine what that means is it used to be the case that we'd go to the sidewalks or the town square to have our rallies, to host our protests. Often that's happening on social media now. Private companies not subject to the First Amendment. Uh, And then you also are doing litigation in government transparency and also government surveillance. And what's interesting to me from a First Amendment perspective is that at least those latter two priorities aren't often considered core First yep. Amendment activities. And yep. you actually acknowledged this on your website. You mm-hmm. said these are often fit within, for example, the government surveillance, a Fourth Amendment That's right. scope. And mm-hmm. uh, so why try and bring them within the First Amendment ambit? Is it mm. that you get higher scrutiny when you apply a First Amendment analysis? Mm. And then, and we, then we can start talking about the First Amendment Lochnerism and yeah, the expansion, yeah, yeah, the yeah, scope yeah. of the yeah. First Amendment. But you know, what's the thinking there? What's the strategy? Yeah, yeah. Well, so the the main um, uh, sort of motivation for focusing on those two areas is that we think of those two areas as involving um, – significant and underappreciated threats to First Amendment values. Uh, if you think of surveillance, for example, you know, which, as you say, is usually analyzed through a Fourth Amendment lens or a privacy lens. Yeah. Uh, but there is a long line of cases, especially from the 1960s and 70s, uh, in which the Supreme Court thought about surveillance through a First Amendment lens. There are all these cases involving the NAACP and efforts by southern states to force the NAACP to disclose information. They're not always thought of as surveillance cases, but they are surveillance cases. They're um, uh, cases in which the government tried to force private organizations to disclose um, sensitive information with with the consequence that association with those organizations was chilled. And we want to try to resurrect the First Amendment as a constraint on government surveillance power, uh, not because it's tactically um, advisable to do it, although you may be right that you know through a First Amendment lens, uh, uh, evaluating these things through a First Amendment lens results in additional scrutiny. Mm-hmm. Uh, I hope that's true. <laughs> uh, but the main motivation for doing it is not that tactical motivation, but just that uh, we see those... Uh, threats, surveillance in particular, as having very real implications for First Amendment freedoms. Uh, and it's especially true at the margins. If, you, if you're focused on communities at the margins that are already um, uh, you know, hesitant to participate in our democracy and you know, in the ways that most other people are not hesitant to do so, you know, government surveillance and even the threat of government surveillance can make those communities even more hesitant. Uh, and we want to think about the First Amendment implications of those policies that are usually evaluated only through a privacy lens. I remember it was a two years ago I had Glenn Greenwald on the show, mm-hmm. and we were talking about the First Amendment and free speech implications of, of surveillance. And he referenced a study that was done a while ago where they simply put an eye, a big eye on the wall in which people were talking or communicating mm-hmm. and when the eye was on the wall, people were less candid than when yeah. the eye wasn't on the wall. So the the idea that it chills speech, there seems to be some some social science research to suggest that exists. And I think just 
intuitively it makes sense when when I was growing up and there's something I didn't right. want my parents to hear. You know, I, I'd be more candid when they were outside of the room than, yeah. of course, when yeah, they were yeah, in the room. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that study, but it you know it's consistent with everything I know about um, uh, this this particular area. And you know, one one ironic thing is, so I'm accustomed to being a plaintiff's lawyer in this particular context, where we are often trying to persuade courts that. Uh, government surveillance does in fact have this chilling effect and it's a chilling effect that the court should be concerned about and the government in those cases is on the other side arguing that no 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 you know what are you talking about there's no chilling effect here but if you look at all these FOIA cases in which we're trying to get government documents about government processes that are otherwise oh, secret you see government lawyers making the same argument government lawyers saying you know oh no 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 you can't release this information because it'll chill discussions within the government about uh, sensitive government policy. Yeah. Oh, that's, you know? a, that's a good and, point. Uh, yeah, I mean, you you know, <laughs> having uh, their counsel say have these conversations over the phone because right, we, right. I mean, so so you know, especially with the deliberative process privilege, you know, the government routinely points to the danger of uh, chill in justifying to courts uh, their their preference to keep certain kinds of documents a secret. Um, and I just think it's interesting that you see the government sort of on. Um, you know, on on both sides of this, and uh, you know, I, I I actually accept the government's view. I mean, I think the government is right that disclosure in that particular context has a chilling effect. Mm-hmm. That you know, requiring the government to disclose deliberative documents um, uh, can have um, a, a discouraging effect on um, uh, the the willingness of government uh, employees to have candid conversations. You have to balance that against the public good that comes from transparency. And that's that's actually a conversation that I've been seeing happen a lot. There was a paper put out by Jonathan Rausch and someone else uh, about what they call radical transparency. The, uh, there was a big movement for transparency in the 90s and 2000s, but there seems to be a, a backlash to to that insofar as they say, well, it's hard to compromise now because everything that's discussed behind closed doors is now subject to to public records requests or to transparency laws. And mm-hmm. and they're saying it's it's kind of helped supercharge the polarization we've seen in this society because you can't speak candidly about anything anymore. Right. To the extent, you know, back deal door deals can be bad, but they can also be good because they can f- allow people to not have to work through some of the issues in the public's life. Yeah, so how, yeah. what do you make of that? You know, that you said no, you have I mean, to balance I, I think, it. Yeah. Look, there are trade-offs here. And yeah. I think that the answer with respect to one set of proceedings or documents may be different from the answer with the right answer with respect to another set of proceedings mm-hmm. or documents. And we should recognize that there are benefits to transparency, but there are sometimes costs. Uh, I mean, I don't, I'm not of the view that we have gone, you, you know, radically too far in the direction of transparency, you, you know, uh, to the contrary, I think that, uh, overall, our problem is still one of um, uh, opacity rather than transparency, mm-hmm. you know. But uh, that's not to say that I think more transparency is um, a cure-all across the board. I think in some contexts, more transparency would be. So you're not um, arguing for perfect transparency in all government processes. I guess I'm arguing for perfect transparency, but perfect transparency and total transparency, I would say, are totally different. Yeah. Things. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> You had, a, you had a conference that I actually attended, a fascinating conference back in March. I think you co-sponsored it with the Columbia Law Review, a First Amendment for All, Free Expression in an Age of Inequality. And, and I was struck by how many of the scholars there were just very skeptical 
of the direction the First Amendment has gone in recent years, expanding the scope, um, now often striking down regulatory or economic policy in a way that it wasn't when you know, our seminal First Amendment cases, for example, in the, the 60s and 70s were being litigated and decided. And since then, Janus happened, uh, yeah. Masterpiece Cake Shop, there was the NIFLA case, and then Elena Kagan, of course, and this is a phrase that I heard a right, lot at right, your right. conference said right. that the First Amendment is being weaponized. Right. This is kind of a two-part question. The first question is, do you see growing skepticism within the progressive movement when it comes to the First Amendment? And then the second part of that, if so, is that a good or bad thing? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, so one of the reasons we we um, co-hosted that that conference is that you know, we have a litigation program, and the litigation program requires us to take strong positions. You can't you know, walk course. into court and say, on the one hand this, on the other hand this. You have to take a position and defend it, right? But we don't have answers to every question. And uh, uh, the research program gives us the opportunity to explore uh, questions that we haven't yet been able to answer. And, you know, a lot of us here um, uh, have been thinking about you know, what it would mean to uh, have a First Amendment that was more attuned to issues of equality. I mean, is there a version of the First Amendment that um, could be more attuned to those uh, issues, or would it mean uh, would it necessarily mean compromising um, the things about the First Amendment that we really value, the sort of neutrality of the First Amendment that we often really value? Um, and so we co-hosted the conference as a way of sort of exploring, you know, exploring that that set of questions. Um, that wasn't your, you know, your question was. Well, I understand um, being in that position because there's this sort of meta debate happening in the campus free speech community and those who comment on it about whether there's a crisis on campus. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and Fire has never said that there's a crisis mm-hmm. on campus. And we would really never take that position just because it doesn't matter to us to the extent there's a crisis because mm-hmm. t- uh, to the extent one person's rights is violated, that's cause for us to become in- involved. And so what we did was we hosted a debate with people on you know all sides right, of right, that right. issue to right. kind of flush it out because we couldn't avoid it. At, but we also didn't feel strongly enough to take a position on it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think that you know we will over time have to and want to take positions on some of these, you know, some of the questions that we debated at the uh, at the conference. A lot of them we haven't yet as an institute taken positions on, you know, questions relating to campaign finance or, you know, we, have, uh-huh. we haven't litigated those questions yet uh, or commercial speech uh, or even regulation of social media, which is something we've spent a lot of time thinking about over the last few months. You know, we we haven't taken a position yet on what that regulation should look like, how tolerant the First Amendment should be of efforts by government to regulate the social media companies. Uh, and all of these questions, you know, campaign finance, commercial speech, regulation of social media, they all, you know, raise, uh, they're all, you know, in some ways interesting for the same reason, which is that you have free speech interests on both sides of the V, right? You have uh, with regulation of social media, you have the social media companies asserting their own First Amendment right to create the community that they want to yeah, create. Yeah, their own editorial right to decide right. what that's right. what expression is hosted on their platform. Right, right. And that's not a implausible Despite argument, the fact they say right? they're not they're not news organizations or media yeah. companies. <laughs> right, right, <laughs> they want right. to have it always. Right. Uh, and then on the other side, you have 
users of social media who say, you know, this is the public square and, you know, whatever rules Facebook adopts here are rules that have the same effect or even a larger effect than the rules that the government adopts with respect to, you know, the analog public square. And so, and I think you've done work on this. I I have friends who work at journalist, you know, outlets. Uh, and when they try and advertise their posts, for example, on Facebook, it falls within their right. their uh, issue advocacy thing. Yeah. And so yeah, they need yeah, to yeah. register and it yeah. becomes a... Well, a, you know, th- this is a bit of a digression, but, but uh, you know, I think of a lot of these questions as sort of presenting um, free speech interests on both sides. And we, like a lot of other people, struggle with how to reconcile or how to balance... Um, uh, those competing First Amendment uh, claims, and this symposium was, you know, an effort to address at least one set of those uh, subset of those those, those questions. questions. Um, you asked, "Do I see increasing skepticism amongst progressive?" Yes, absolutely. Um, uh, skepticism about the First Amendment. Now, uh, you know, the skepticism that I see is about the First Amendment as it's been interpreted by the Supreme Court over the last couple of decades, right? Uh, you mentioned this sort of um, deregulatory First Amendment, the increasing use of the First Amendment um, as a deregulatory tool. Uh, and I definitely see skepticism from progressives about uh, about that. I don't think Justice Kagan is on her own um, in expressing profound reservations about the use of the First Amendment um, to um, uh, limit the government's ability yeah, to Yeah, Michael to Seidman over at Georgetown had that popular, that I think will actually be in the November Columbia Law Review. That's right, that, yeah, yeah, that yeah. Sort of yeah. came out of this conference yeah. where he said, can free speech be progressive? And his answer, in short, was more or less no, but it was it was no for, in a way that I don't. I think a lot of people have missed. He said, if yeah. you want to use the First Amendment to reach certain progressive outcomes, such as uh, you know defeating income inequality, right. for example, you can't expect it yeah. to do yeah, that. You're expecting too much of the First Amendment. It, I think yeah, that's his. Yeah, um, uh, and I, I think you know what he would say, and what what he I think did say in his paper is that progressives should look to other mechanisms. You yeah, know, of uh, to to achieve those kinds of one ends. thing he did say that that struck me as as sort of unfair is that he said the First Amendment can be utilized in a greater way by people with greater wealth. And I, David Cole recently in the New York Times said, yeah. you know, he, he's sympathetic to that argument, but it argues too much. I mean, you can say that about any right, for example, right. the right to an abortion, the right to hire a good criminal defense attorney, the right to send your kid to private school, for example. So so that doesn't, you know, and, and what sort of, what level of equality is enough for us to say, okay, now we can defend these rights it's yeah i mean i i guess you know for 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 me um i think the more the more useful strategy at this point or the more useful thing to do at this point is just to, to think about the values we want the first amendment to protect mm-hmm. and uh you know, if you think of self-government as central to the first amendment's concern that you know not, i'm not suggesting that self-government exhausts the first amendment's concern that um, it's certainly core to the First Amendment's concern. Um, maybe we should evaluate each of the Supreme Court's decisions uh, over the last you know, 10, 20 years by reference to self-government and ask whether um, decisions uh, striking down campaign finance regulations are in fact serving that particular value 
uh, do they make it more possible for us collectively to um, decide what kind of society we want to live in um, and achieve that kind of society, or are they getting in the way of those kinds of decisions? And same with you know, regulation of social media. You know, if you want to decide how much to uh, how much weight to give to Facebook's claim that it is uh, entitled to full First Amendment protection for its editorial quote unquote decisions. Uh, if you want to decide how much weight to give to that argument, as opposed to the argument of Facebook's users that Facebook is akin to a public square and that it should um, uh, be uh, expected to uh, govern the public square uh, in the way that a public square um, ought to be governed, well, you know, maybe refer back to self-government. Maybe you know, uh, ask the question. Which of these arguments better serves that you know that underlying value? Now, I'm not going to pretend that you know from self-government you can go directly to a single answer. You know, mm-hmm. there's uh, there's going to be a debate about it, uh, but it narrows you know it narrows the debate to think about the values that the first amendment. Yeah, there are and there are yeah. multiple. There's the marketplace of ideas, the search for truth, the yeah. idea of individual autonomy, which is like the libertarian argument. Uh, so yeah, balancing right. or figuring but out which. I think it's fair to say that that um, virtually everybody thinks that self-government is core to the First Amendment's concern. Now, once you get beyond self-government, people disagree about how much weight you should give autonomy. Uh, you know how much weight you should give sort of self-expression or or uh, self-determination or you know, uh, but. Um, yeah, I think you know, it's few and far between is, is the, the the common you know. Yeah. Uh, Few and far between are the people who would argue that the First Amendment isn't important for that reason. Right, right, right. You know, I wonder whether sort of starting from the values rather than from the doctrine might be a helpful way uh, of approaching some of these questions. So the last question here, because we have two more minutes here. Artificial intelligence. Have you been thinking about that question at all? I've done like three podcasts on it at this point, and everyone is very confused as to how we should think about artificial intelligence's uh, First Amendment protections. Yeah. Uh, it's a great question to which I don't have uh, I don't have a a good answer. Uh, but if we have only two more minutes, I want to I want to mention another project that we're working on, which is not unrelated. Um, so we have been representing journalists and researchers uh, who study the social media platforms, and they want to uh, inform the public debate about what about how these platforms work and what speech is getting privileged and what speech is getting suppressed, and uh, they find themselves their 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 research stymied by the social media platforms terms of service which bar the use of certain digital tools you can't scrape facebook for you can't scrape publicly available information from facebook you can't use a temporary research account on facebook because it violates their fake account uh, prohibition um and uh you know facebook isn't the government and facebook isn't bound by the first amendment and so it's hard to make an argument directly under the first amendment that facebook um is acting unlawfully by preventing researchers and journalists from doing this kind of work uh, but um this kind of work is really crucial right now um 
to helping us understand how the digital public square works, uh, helping us understand um, uh, the human and algorithmic decisions that shape the public square and that shape public discourse. Of course, the controversy surrounding bots and their influence on the 2016 election, which I imagine is one reason you can't have research accounts on Facebook, for example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I think that generally these the prohibitions that uh, Facebook and other platforms have on the use of these digital tools, generally those prohibitions are very easy to understand and I think serve um, obvious purposes, obvious legitimate purposes. But they also have the effect of um, impeding or, or altogether preventing certain kinds of journalism and research that are especially important right now. And so we have been um, talking to Facebook. We sent Facebook a letter, a public letter, a few weeks ago, uh, urging Facebook to adopt a safe harbor for certain kinds of journalism. I saw that on your website, yeah. Yeah. And uh, we've been talking to Facebook over the last few weeks about that proposal, and um, uh, we'll be putting more energy into that, not just with Facebook, with other platforms as well, trying to get them to come up with ways of uh, protecting their users' privacy and protecting the integrity of their platforms, but also allowing uh, for this kind of journalism and research, which are you know, so important right now. All right. Well, I think we'll leave it there. Uh, Jamil Jaffer, thank you for coming on the show today. The Knight Institute is protecting free speech and free press in the digital age. Thank you. Thank you. That was Jamil Jaffer, director of the Knight First Amendment Institute at Columbia University. You can learn more about the Knight Institute at knightcolumbia.org. Again, that is knightcolumbia.org. Knight is spelled K-N-I-G-H-T, by the way, for those of you who aren't familiar with the famous Knight Foundation. This podcast is hosted, produced, and recorded by me, Nico Perino, and edited by my colleague, Aaron Reese. To learn more about So To Speak, you can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash freespeechtalk or like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash so to speak podcast. You can also email us feedback, as always, at so to speak at thefire.org. And if you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts. Reviews, as always, help us attract new listeners to this show. Until next time, I thank you again for listening. <laughs>